to me. Yeah, I think you need to turn down the music back there, uh, Case. Yeah. I mean, not that I don't like a little soundtrack with my sermons. And, you know, typically on Sunday, I'd rather have that even a little bit louder, but probably not today. Um, well, here's the situation. I, I'm, I'm actually really horrible at topical sermons, which is why we preach uh, expositionally here at Substance. It's not so that uh, I'm so wonderful at that either. But I, I need grounding because, frankly, I'm not a super imaginative uh, guy when it comes time to bring a word to people. So because of that, I figure it shouldn't be my word. So we're going to anchor ourselves in John 21, and I'm going to hopefully root this topic in Scripture and try to deal. This is where I'm going today, is I want to deal with the tension of being who we are in Christ before we start doing things for Him. And I'm going to deal with some of the tension that we're going to see that Peter had in living this out, especially after the disaster that happened with him, between him and Christ right there on the eve of the cross. And here's, here's the good news when we talk about identity. It's that God has established our identities in him by choosing us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. That's Ephesians 1. That's not me. That's the Ephesians 1 passage, which uses all kinds of language that's troubling to all different kinds of theological persuasions. Um, but what it does tell us is that before the foundation of the world, God clearly predestined that wonderful word that has caused no controversy in churches around the world. Uh, he's predestined. He's called us to an identity that he not only saves us to, but secures us and sustains us in. So this is not like a job or a vocation or relationship or financial situation. The only thing that we are incapable of losing is our identity in Christ that was decided by God before time began and is established in us by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. I'm showing my colors right now where I'm going with all this. And I feel like you guys should be clapping after I say something like that, quite frankly. Right? Psalm 139 says this, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then he says this, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. No pun, I didn't pick that to you know, align with the name of our church. And then he says this, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So David's not trying to give us a biology lesson right here. Uh, he's basically saying that God knows who we are because he's responsible for creating our identity and choosing the number of days that we will live out. Okay. So when we get this sense of identity, it's something that God had already purposed to give us before we existed. And if you go back to the first verse of Psalm 139, he says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. So there's this sense, there's this beautiful sense that our identity is preordained to come to fruition in Christ upon repentance and faith. And, and what that means is that there's, there's nothing out there to scramble up my DNA, or, or my identity in Christ, the foundation of it, because Christ has already established it, right? So everything you face, everything that I face, that puts our identity into crisis mode, it's completely known to God. 
It was completely preordained as a way to sanctify us and ground us in holiness as we start just even at the tip thinking about our identity as being disciples of Christ. Uh, In terms of uh, definition, we like definitions. I like how Jonathan Parnell, a guy from Desiring God Ministries, this is how he defines the word disciple. I like this. He says, applied to Jesus, a disciple is someone who learns from him to live like him. Someone who, because of God's awakening grace, conforms his or her words and ways to the words and ways of Jesus. Now, I like that. I like that because definitions like that, to me, are helpful. I like to know who I am. I like to know what my purpose is in Christ. But here's the the thing, and this is kind of what we're going to be diving into. What do I do when my identity gets challenged? What do I do in this, this preordainedness and this adoption in Christ and all these beautiful, complex things that Paul literally hurls at us in Ephesians 1? Like, what happens when that gets challenged? What happens when getting out there and killing it for Jesus on the mission field is killing me? What happens when that starts killing me? I mean, I know, I know some, I know you guys, you spent hundred K on the MDiv, right? To have the right answers. Or if you're me and MA to have some of the right answers, but we are in the, in the reality of the valley of the shadow of death. And you are fearing evil. You are not experiencing comfort. What is God trying to do with the person that he's called you to be? What is he trying to do with us? In those moments, what is he trying to shape in our hearts in those moments? So today, I want to want to grapple with the idea of being a disciple the way the apostle Peter did, and how Jesus had to settle Peter's identity. He had to bring it back. He had to reclaim who Peter was before he sent Peter back out to live it out. Because at the end of the day, and you guys have experienced this yourselves, God is constantly calling us back to who we are. In Christ. It's not like we just came to Christ and we're there and it's presto and we've arrived. I mean, we believe in the S word, sanctification. And part of sanctification is God bringing us back. And we see that with Peter. God is constantly calling us back to who we are in Christ. Not so that we become more self-centered. But because we've become self-centered. So as we read through... The pages, this is what's interesting to me, as we read through the pages and the stories of the Bible, and this is a, a series we did recently at our church, uh, what's interesting is that the emphasis that we see over and over again is not about all the courageous people who fought the good fight of the faith and got out there and, you know, conquered the world like Jedi masters for Jesus. Right? That's not really what the emphasis is when we see the lives of people that God used that were most of the time like lying in utter ruins. What we see about these stories is that primarily, this goes back to what Kevin just said, they're about God. They're about God unfolding his glorious plan through unbelievably ridiculous screw-ups that he consistently redeems and restores For the sake of what? For the sake of him. For the sake of his own name and glory. So as we get into the story of Peter, this is what we're going to see, man. Peter is coming off of a spectacularly disastrous run. 
And if you know anything about Peter, you know you can just use that as a descriptive you know, comment about almost his entire life, right? I mean, you think back to one of the worst days of your life, and you're, you're just going to be right with where Peter is at today. And again, remember, this is one of Jesus' closest friends who just a few days prior denied Jesus three times the night before Jesus died. I mean, that's like the textbook definition of, of adding insult to injury, right? With everything that had happened. And as much as we like to talk about sort of the dark nights of the soul that we experience, what I find interesting is that nobody talks about the morning after the dark night of the soul. I mean, Peter is not a guy with a hangover who needs a little V8 juice right now, right? I mean, this is Peter in the depths of loneliness as we get into this passage. The depths of confusion about who he is, about who Jesus was, and about what on earth he's supposed to do now, that those two things are entirely unclear to him. So we should make no mistake and understand that who we are in Christ is not like learning to ride a bike, man. I mean, dude, I learned how to ride a bike when I was three, and I went a few years without riding a bike, and I got back on the bike, and I could ride the bike. That's not the Christian life. We constantly and consistently forget. So let's turn to John 21. I'm just going to step us through this as we can sort of get the sense to what Peter was dealing with about his identity as a disciple. And let's just see, let's just see how much we line up and can relate to this in our own lives. Here's a little background, a little context. He's been to the tomb three days. It's three days after Jesus died. Peter's been to the tomb. He finds out that Jesus wasn't there. Remember, you, you look in the gospel, John talks about him and Peter, you know, running to the tomb. John gets a little cocky and says, I arrived there first. And he gives all these details that I don't, I don't know why matter, but you get a sense that they go to the tomb. The women have been there. Jesus isn't there confusion, chaos. They don't know what's going on. They didn't believe half the things he told them when they received their seminary education from him during those three years. And right now, it's like the whole plan, the whole future that they thought they were going to be experiencing with Jesus as president, it's out. They're out. They have no idea what's going on. Hope has gone. It's become a memory. The feeling of loss is unbearable. That's where Peter is at. And now we're going to see how Jesus calls Peter back to himself. Let's pick up. John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So the sitch right now is that Peter, in the state that Peter is in, and what we know about Peter is that Peter's always in a state that he's in, right? Kind of reminds, kind of reminds me of me. Peter goes back to the old job. Peter goes back to the old day job. It's like how a lot of us feel when we don't know what to do, so we go back to what we know how to do. And that's what we're seeing with Peter. Peter goes fishing, takes six of his closest buddies. And again, we got to understand who's with Peter right now. These are dudes who understood 
the place Peter was in. These are men who understood the confusion and the shock of everything that had just happened to Jesus. What's interesting about Peter in this state of chaos is that he had friends. He had community. He didn't know a lot of things, but he had some things that had been built into his life and into his identity. He had friends. He had community. He had people to walk beside him when life had taken some unexpectedly dark terms and there was no immediate answers being offered, right? You know what Peter was experiencing in that moment? The church. Peter was experiencing the church. Men that walked beside him through grief and pain. What was going on was that Peter would be experiencing a foretaste of the church. That Jesus would start planting and building on his shoulders. But right now, he's not there yet. Right now, the nets are empty. Right now, nothing's working in his life. And there's no one here that can't relate to those times when when all of your best efforts produce absolutely zero. I mean, mean, you guys, I mean, you know, we can have some real talk here. I mean, you guys ever have those moments where no matter what you do, it's like you're trying to sing and all the notes are flat, right? Constantly. I mean, there's nobody that can't relate to what is being described by John where the nets are empty. It's not happening. A whole night wasted. Add insult to injury. Nothing's coming together. All night. No fish. Man, no fish sticks, man. No fish sandwiches with tartar sauce. Nothing for these brothers. But I think it's important for us to understand that it's no accident that the nets are empty for Pete and the boys. All right? It's a divinely unsuccessful fishing trip, as really we're going to see. And here's the thing. As much as we have a hard time giving God glory for our successes. Man, we struggle with that, don't we? Because I like to think it was me. Man, I I did it. It's me. This is all about my talents and skills. And I know God gave me those, but, you know, really, it's just me acting these things out and, you know, my head inflating a little bit. So as much as we have a hard time giving God glory for our success, we have an even harder time giving him glory for our failures. But look what happens. Let's go to verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. Inflection. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter, heard, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Let's stop there. So Jesus arrives at the shore, shows up. They don't recognize him. He says, children... Do you have any fish? It's the first thing they hear out of the mouth of Jesus after all of this torrential downpour of uncertainty. And what I like about this is that it's it's a gentle reminder to us of the tenderness 
of his relationship to them and consequently us. I mean, these are brothers that all abandoned Jesus the night before his death, but he clearly had not abandoned them. Because a true disciple, at the end of the day, has true assurance that Jesus will be there. He cared not only about their souls either, but he also cared about their sustenance. He called them to be fishers of men, but he knew the necessity that they had to be fishers of fish too. These are brothers that need to eat. I need to eat, right? And of course, I love the reply, no. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just funny, right? I probably would have said, you know, not yet. Can you give us a minute? Can you give me a little more time out on the water, right? But it had been all night, and these are, these are dejected dudes. And it's not really because the fish aren't biting, is it? I mean, the focus looks like it's the fish, right? It's been all night, fishing, man, no luck, if I can use that word amongst you. And uh, it's not really what it is, though, is it? It's not really that the fish aren't biting. they got other things going on. There's other stuff going on inside of them. So Jesus tells them, cast their net on the right side of the boat, and boom. I mean, the fish just come like gleefully, like, like swimming. It's like finding emo. It's like, whoa. You know, the fish just come swimming in. And then John has this epiphany moment, right? And he looks over at our boy Pete, and he says, hey, Petey, that's not Long John Silver on the shore. It's the Lord, right? So he just throws it out there. And this is why I love Peter. This is why I love this brother. This is why I feel like this ready, fire, aim brother that we have in Peter. I mean, dude doesn't even hesitate after everything that's happened, man. What does Peter need? He just needs to get into the presence of Jesus. He just needs to get into the presence of Jesus. One of the characteristics of a disciple is that even when we've sinned grievously against the Lord, Jesus is always inviting and drawing us back, and we are pulled to that, aren't we? We're pulled to it. And like everything you read about Peter, man, it's just one awkward party after another with this brother. Dude is always blurting out insanely ridiculous things, chopping people's ears off. You know, and here he is now, instead of row, row, rowing back to shore with the fellas, Peter, wait for it, throws on his clothes, dives into the water, and Michael Phelps his way back to the shore while leaving the disciples to haul in the catch. You know, thanks, Pete. We appreciate that. No, no, you go ahead. You know, we'll just take the rest of this in, right? I mean, you got to love that. You got to love the response. You got to love the eagerness of Peter. I like that. I want that kind of eagerness. Man, when I see Jesus, when I know that the presence of Jesus is right there, man, I just want to go after it. I want to get back to him. I don't care what you guys are doing. I'm going to go back. I'm going to get after it. I'm going to go after it. I love that. I love that. Everyone has a friend or a family member like Peter, don't we? A lovable laughable, just loose cannon. It's just, it's so encouraging to read about a guy that is so similar to us in temperament. Let's pick up in verse 9. And then he says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. I can do for a little bread. I'm not going to lie. Anytime I see bread, I mean, you're going to see a little excitement going on in Big R here, right? 
Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, thanks Pete, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so what I love about this is that we see really just one of the most strikingly beautiful portraits of Jesus, I think, in all of the Bible. I think this is just remarkable. Um, the creator of the, of the universe. Like, I mean, just try to get that like, sort of settled in you. The creator of people, fish, bread, charcoal, fire, water, boats, fish, and shores. Standing on what he has made. Starting a fire and cooking breakfast. I mean, man, there was a lot that needed to be discussed, wasn't there? I mean, there were a lot of unanswered questions at that point, wasn't there? But right now, not right now. Right now, Jesus knew that these brothers were tired, that they were hungry, and they needed to eat. And they needed to regain their strength, and they needed to rest their tired bones and their tired souls. So as we think about our identity, what I think is more important to think about as we let that become settled in our hearts is to not miss the character and the nature of Jesus in this moment. To not to miss the character and the nature of God in this moment. We think God only cares about the part of us that's serving him, don't we? We only think that God cares about the part of us that's serving and praying and reading his word and tithing to him. But God cares about us holistically, doesn't he? He cares about us in our entirety because he made us entirely. I mean, Jesus brought Peter back to shore. Jesus brought Peter back to himself, back to the innermost longing of Peter's heart, which was to be loved and forgiven and to reestablish those truths in his heart. I mean, it's not like Petey boy had a short memory here, right? I mean, you think Peter forgot about what had happened a few days before? I mean, it's not like he, he didn't remember what he did. It's not that when he saw Jesus, it's not like the, the shame wasn't welling up inside, I mean, do you think he was able just to carry on after that and everything was cool? But it was better, it was better to face Jesus in his sin than to run from the face of Jesus in his sin. That's what happened to Judas, wasn't it? But Peter knew Jesus because Jesus knew Peter. And so as Peter inches closer to the charcoal fire, man, again, he would remember. He would remember what happened the last time he stood around a fire in the courtyard where he denied knowing Jesus. But this time was different. It was different. Jesus invited him to come and eat with him. 
And it says they all knew it was the Lord. They all knew. There was something displayed in the character and nature of Jesus in that moment that conjured up some distinct memory in their mind to where that's him. That's the Savior that we know. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I mean, you know what that means for us? It means people who know Jesus can expect Jesus to speak to them and have the assurance that when he does, they'll know it's Jesus. That's called assurance. That's called hope. There was no questioning his identity as Jesus took the bread, he took the fish, he gave it to them, no doubt recalling the moment when he fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish, no doubt recalling the moment when he broke bread with them in the upper room on the night before his death and said, do this in remembrance of me. And I can't, I can't read this without wondering how much we slander God in our own minds. We think he doesn't care. Do you ever think that about God? Like you would never say it. You would never say it consciously. But we think it subconsciously. We think he doesn't care. We think God forgets. We think he isn't so much concerned with our needs. As if the one who provided our greatest need on the cross would betray his own character by not providing for our lesser ones? Why do we think that? Why do I think that? Jesus provided food. Jesus provided himself. And here, he provides proof to his disciples for a third time that he'd been raised from the dead. But now comes the time for him to confront Peter. Not to retaliate, but to restore Peter's identity back to himself. Peter's thinking, it's probably all over for me. I'm probably going back to catching fish for a living. Jesus reminds him that the last three years were all preparation for what lied ahead, including the dark nights that he had just been going through. Let's pick up with 15. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Not a little light conversation with Jesus, not trying to break the ice, not trying to you know, come in around the back with you know, a little soft banter before we get to the heart of the matter like we all do when we're counseling people. Jesus just kind of comes right in. That's what I love right here. Just comes right in and says, son of John, Simon, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Verse 18, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So reflecting on the three times that Peter denied him, Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him. And each time Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. And each time Jesus replies by saying, all right, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. By the time Jesus asked a third time, I mean, Peter's starting to wonder what's going on. Why the repetition? Like, did you not hear me the first time, Jesus? I mean, am I stuttering? Like, what are you trying to get from me right now? So Peter becomes grieved because conviction is heavy. When we're reminded of our sin and it keeps sort of like slamming us and it keeps building layers in us and it keeps dropping down on us and we keep thinking, stop, stop, stop. Well, that's because it's conviction. And that's because it's heavy. It's weighty. Because sin is a weight that needs to be lifted. Now notice what's happening here. Jesus is not punishing Peter. You guys get that? Jesus is not punitive. He is not punishing Peter. The punitive damages for Peter's sin were just paid for like three days ago. On the cross. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know, Pete, here's the sitch. We're coming off a bad run here, so, you know, why don't you just get out there and actually prove that you love me by tending my sheep. He doesn't say that. But we think of God like that, don't we? We lose the identity that we've been given as predestined and adopted Sons and daughters that are receiving an inheritance because Jesus is now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Like, we just forget that. We act like God is the old schoolmaster, man. You know, let me get a little Downton Abbey on you. I mean, we just act like God is the old schoolmaster who just wants to whip us and crack us and work us. And you're going to pay. Those thoughts... Those thoughts you've been having, yeah, you need to work those things out. You need to work those things out. I mean, how graceless do we become because we lose who God has created us to be before the foundation of the world, his disciple. We forget the fact that God loves us. What a strange thing. How many of you guys take that that line for granted? I almost, I I don't even know if I say that to people because I feel like they're not going to hear that when I'm sitting with a brother or a sister who is literally going through something in their life that is claiming their very heart and soul. And I feel tentative about pausing and saying, but you know, God loves us. Like we've turned it into this almost this unbelievably trite, unbelievable, non-truthful phrase. 
John Calvin said, the beginning of love, I love this quote, the beginning of love is the grace of Christ. The beginning of love is the grace of Christ. And this is Jesus reminding Peter that the love he is extending to him is infused part and parcel with the grace that he's receiving in the moment because the crime was paid for. Peter's crime was paid for. And I just think, because I know who I am, and I just don't think that any of you are really that much different than me, except you're not as smart alecky, is that you all struggle with this identically to me. And you're losing who you are in Christ. If we lose who we are in Christ, it doesn't mean we're less self-centered. It means we're less centered on Christ. That's what was happening with Peter right here. Three things as we finish. Three things that I think, looking at this passage, a disciple of Jesus needs to be reassured of and reminded of constantly. We need to be reminded of who Jesus is and who we are now in light of who he is. Number one. Jesus pursues us to the end, brothers and sisters. Jesus pursues us to the end. Jesus rises from the grave. He meets his friend on the seashore. He pursued them to the end. We think God must be too busy to be involved. Like we use those kind of cliched lines on people without applying them to ourselves. Because there are times when I think he's too busy to be involved. After all, he's God. But what's interesting is that his death and his resurrection give us the opposite picture. You know? He's not a deadbeat God. He's the picture of involvement. God sends his son, crushes his son, raises his son, brings his son home as our eternal advocate. That's kind of involved. And again, this doesn't mean it's all about you. It means it's all about Jesus who gave and gives all of himself to you. I mean, have you ever had an impression of, of someone that, that was wrong? You know, you thought something and it ended up, oh, I, I had that totally screwed up. The Bible tells us that before God saves us, we all have the wrong impression of God. And then after we know Jesus, our impression of him changes because we are being changed to be more like him. And that's because he relentlessly and tirelessly continues to pursue us. Psalm 139, we read a little bit of it. Here's some more of it. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Think about that at breakfast tomorrow. He's going, yep, he just sat down. There goes the raisin bran. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. I don't know. That leaves me a little unsettled when I read that. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Wonderful. 
you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Isn't that a remarkable verse? You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. And if we just stop there, if we just stop there and consider the presence of God in terms of how he continues to feed and flesh and bring to fruition the identity we have as his disciple, we get to the last section of this, which is this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So what the psalmist is saying here is like, I'm a dude and I can't grasp this. And I just go, yeah, me neither. But the Lord is working this knowledge in me to remind me that the, I, though I can't grasp the, the heights and the depths and the love of his presence. And I, I can sense it. I can feel it. I can believe it. I can know it. And I can know it even when I don't feel it, which is where we get into trouble a lot. So Jesus pursues us to the end. Number two, Jesus provides for all our needs. It's not a small thing. Now, hear what I'm going to say here. It's not a small thing that the creator of the universe made breakfast for his friends. Think about that. He made breakfast for his friends. Yeah, we, need, we need breakfast. We need breakfast. I need breakfast right now. I started thinking maple nut donuts halfway through this, this talk. I need breakfast. There's not a need that any of you have right now that you can credit anyone other than God for meeting. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus provides your needs so that you actually stay needy. Isn't that amazing? Jesus provides for our needs so that we actually stay needy for his provision. I mean, that just, you know, this just sounds like logic that I can't wrap my head around. So let me get this straight. You're going to keep giving me everything I need so that I keep desperately going after you, begging you to give me what I need, which really is more of you. Uh, Yeah, that's how we roll with that. Peter needed those fish. Think about that. Peter needed those fish in that moment. But he also needed that forgiveness. He also needed the love of Jesus. Peter needed some things from Jesus. Peter was a needy dude. So are you. So am I. I'm a needy dude that preaches to needy dudes every Sunday. And women, obviously, there you go. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans about the nature of God's love, listen to what he said in Romans 8. He said this. In terms of our neediness, he said, what then shall we say to these things? I can't back up and give you the whole exposition of Romans 8. If God is for us, I know you've heard this. You're supposed to hear it today. You're supposed to hear it right now again. So meditate on this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously, don't miss the graciously word, it's just not Paul trying to be more theological, graciously give us what? 
all things. Jesus provides for our needs as a way of reminding us who we are in him. So Jesus pursues us to the end, provides for all of our needs, and finally Jesus calls us to love him. He calls us to love him. Jesus calls you to love him before he calls you to live for him. He calls you to love him before he calls you to live for him, and he's jealous for your love. He's jealous for that love. He wants you to follow him, to obey him, to serve him, but he wants your hearts before he uses your hands. How would you answer Jesus if he came up to you and asked, do you love me? How would you answer that? I don't don't know. I think I'd be a little nervous. He doesn't ask Peter, will you ever fail me again? Here's a question, Pete. Here's a rhetorical question. Will you ever fail me again? He doesn't ask that. That's like asking a politician if they're ever going to lie again. You know, do I even need to ask that? That's not what he asked. All Jesus wanted was Peter's heart. All Jesus wants are our hearts. The cross makes it possible for us to have restored hearts. The resurrection makes it possible to have rejoicing hearts. So here's some questions. Are you like Peter? Am I like Peter? Do you love Jesus? Do you know Jesus? I didn't say, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know him and do you love him like Peter? I'm supposed to love Jesus like Peter? Yeah. Because Peter, like David, was always brought back to Jesus. Like we read about David being a man after God's own heart because his default was always eventually to go back to God. Well, I mean, we never give Peter any credit for that. Peter goes back to Jesus. Peter went back to shore. Let me ask you this. Would you have recognized Jesus on the shore? Would you have recognized Jesus on the shore? Because let me get a little epic right now. Do you know that there really is no other question that needs to be answered in your life? Do you recognize the hand of Jesus in the intricate details of your life? Because, brothers and sisters, it's there. It's written all over it. There's not a place. It's not in existence. Everything in your life led you to this moment today on April 16th, 2016. It's a divine act of providence on the part of God that you are sitting here listening to this guy. I mean, I I should probably apologize after that. But again, I had nothing to do with setting this up. Because at some point before the foundation of the world, because I'm a good reformed guy, I believe he had it all hooked up. He had it all set up. You can judge me for that last comment. So the question for us today is, do we need to be restored like Peter so that we might answer the call to follow Jesus once again? 
Jesus already asked Peter to follow him. That had already been stated. Peter had been following Jesus for three years. What was going on right now? What was going on right now was that Jesus was reaching into the recesses of Peter's heart to bring him back to who he was so that he could go back out on mission. And do you not think that that's going to happen to you multiple times in your life? And what we do in those moments is we try to go out and ramp it up. I want to do more. I'm feeling unsettled, so I need to ramp up the activity. I need to ramp up the ministry. I need to just spend a little more focused time on these people and this thing and this task. And all that time, Jesus is saying, that's kind of the problem. I need you to call I need to call you back to who you are in me so that the things that you do for me will be fruit-producing acts. Instead of leaving you flailing. Jesus fills our longing to be known so we can learn from him, love him, and live for him because we follow, our default is that we follow the thing or person we believe will fill our longing to be loved and forgiven. And it will be Jesus or it will be something else. I mean, make no mistake, right? We are all followers today. I mean, nobody's neutral. Nobody's, nobody's sitting here neutral. We were created to worship. Worship is the default mechanism of our hearts. Your strings right now are being yanked. Your strings are being pulled right now. By who? By what? In John 6, you guys remember this, after a large group of disciples, Jesus had been ministering to a large group of disciples, and a, and a, and a rather large portion of them decided to leave Jesus. Remember? And so he asked this question to the 12 disciples he'd chosen to be his, his, uh, his leaders and his church planners and his missionaries. And he says this, he says, do you want to go away? Are you out? And Simon Peter, and the guy that just received so much criticism from us, here's what our boy Pete said. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Don't you love that? I love how Peter just bottom line. I'm, like, I'm like kind of a bottom liney kind of guy, and I love how Peter just gets to the bottom line. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what's Peter doing right now but saying, I know whose I am. I don't know if that was proper English, but I just said it. I know who I belong to right now. I belong to the one who speaks the holy words of God. That's who I am. So if you know Jesus, and I'm just not assuming that all of you know Jesus. But if you know Jesus, he's probably calling you back in some way, shape, or form today to who you are, like Peter. Like Peter, he's calling you back to shore. He's calling you back to the place where he's waiting to fill your longing to be known, to be loved, and to be forgiven so that you can leave today and have fruit in your life that reflects that. But we have to remember who we are. We have to be brought back into the joy, into the gladness that we have 
because there was a cross that Christ died on and we have life and freedom, brothers and sisters. You guys hear me? Let me pray for us.